Good morning. Welcome to Sunday Morning with the Love in Action. I am Ken Tuck. Thank you for joining me today. Hope all is well in your world. If not, just keep on pressing into Jesus. He's got you. He's got this. And I hope you are ready to have some fun today. We're going to do something a little different today. It's going to give you, uh, well, it's really twofold. It's going to give you who are believers some valuable information to help you answer some questions people have. And if you're not a believer, maybe a skeptic, here's some information that I pray will speak to you too. Today we're going to talk about the authenticity and reliability of the Bible. Before we get into that, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for this day. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that you give us. Lord, you paid it all. You paid the price for all of us. And you tell us if we'll believe, you'll come in, you'll save us, you'll forgive us, and you'll give us eternal life. I praise you for that. And I pray for those who don't know you who are listening this morning. I pray that today will be the day that they hear something that connects and that the eyes of their hearts will be opened and that they will see the truth, the truth of the gospel. And that they'll call out to you, Jesus. For like your word says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us like you do. God, thank you for just always being with us, always caring for us. As a matter of fact, you tell us in your word to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. So those who are carrying a heavy load today, I pray, God, they'll just turn it over to you and trust you because we can. And, Father, we just want to ask your Holy Spirit now to teach us, guide us, and direct us into all truths. And I pray we will be doers of your word as you tell us to, and not hearers only. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have you ever had somebody ask you, how do you know the Bible's true? Is it authentic? Is it reliable? Maybe you are somebody who's thinking that yourself. That's what today's program is about. We're going to talk about the authenticity and the reliability of the Bible, and I pray it just sheds some more light for you and show you how authentic and reliable the Bible truly is. Now, most of the material for what I'm going to talk about today is primarily derived from Meekness and Truth Ministries, so I want to give them credit right up top. But let's dive in. Most critics of the Bible, they have said things like this, like Thomas Paine from The Age of Reason He wrote, There is no history written at the time Jesus Christ is said to have lived that speaks of the existence of such a person, even as a man. And then another quote here from Bertrand Russell from Why I Am Not a Christian. He wrote, Historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and if he did, do not know anything about him. Now, when people ask questions about the authenticity of the Bible, What do you think they're really asking about? Possible questions behind that question are these. Number one, how do you know if the Bible we have today is the same as the original? So that's an issue of accuracy of translation and copying. The second question, assuming that the translation and copying is accurate, how do we know if the writers did not make up the stories? And thirdly, how do we know that the Bible is not just a myth that was embellished over time. So these are often questions that those who are skeptical of the Bible will ask to try to disprove that the Bible is is real, that the Bible is true. To discover whether the Bible is reliable, we're going to use use a process called MAPS, M-A-P-S, which stands for Manuscripts, Archaeology, Prophecy, and Statistics. So how do you know if the Bible we have today 
is the same as the original. That's that issue of accuracy and translation and copying and so forth. So we're going to look at manuscript evidence, and there's three tests for that. Bibliographical, external evidence, and internal evidence. Let's look at the bibliographical test first. It examines how well the texts are transmitted to us. So number one, we need to look at the number of copies of the original. Number two, we need to look at the time gap between the original and existing copies. And number three, the degree of accuracy of the copies. So you see, we're not just saying that it's true. We're doing a test as we go through this discussion about the reliability and authenticity of the Bible. The number of copies. And now, once you hear this, that this alone should be enough to say, yeah, that's the real deal, the, the Bible is. Because there are 5,600 and 86 written Greek New Testament manuscripts. That's 5,686 handwritten Greek New Testament manuscripts. Of course, we know the New Testament was written in Greek. There's 10,000 Latin Vulgates. 10,000, okay? And close to 25,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament exists, exists today. 25,000 manuscript copies. For me, when I learned of those numbers, I was like, yeah, that, there's no doubt in my mind. Of course, I believed it anyway, but I was thinking from a skeptical mind that, okay, if I was skeptical about the Bible, this right here would be more than enough to make me say, yeah, that Bible is the real thing. But let's look at a time interval now. The New Testament has earlier manuscripts closer to the time of the original composition. For example, the John Ryland Fragment. 117 to 138 A.D., that's just one generation. Then from 150 to 200 A.D., there are whole books. There's most of the New Testament we find in 250, and in 325 to 350 A.D., nearly all the Bible. So very short time intervals from the time events happen in the Bible to recording time. And let's do some comparison here, comparison to other ancient manuscripts. Homer's Iliad, very, very popular, famous piece of literary work. The date is 800 B.C., and the earliest known copy is 400 B.C. So there's 400 years in that gap there between when it was written and the earliest copy, 400 years. And there are 643 copies of the Iliad, 643. So that's pretty good, right? But then you look at the, the New Testament, and there's a 50-year gap from 50 A.D. to 100 A.D., only 50 years, and there's 5,686 copies, 5,686 compared to 643. You look at others like Plato, date 400 B.C., earliest known copy, 900 A.D. That's 1,300 years in between. That's that gap of 1,300 years, and there's only seven copies. But still, that's not bad from something from that far back. You look at Julius Caesar, the Gaelic Wars, 100 to 44 B.C., earliest copy is 900 A.D. That's a gap of a 1,000 years, and there's 10 copies of it. We go back and we look at these ancient manuscripts, pieces of work that people read and throughout the ages and 
rely upon the upon those pieces of literature and easily believe that, okay, those were written then. But then you see something like the New Testament that far exceeds anything that Homer or Julius Caesar or Plato, any of them did. The gap is so narrow, only 50 years, and there's so many copies, over almost 5,700 copies of the New Testament. And it's like, why can't you see this? There is so much more proof just right there that the Bible is authentic and it is reliable than any of the other copies of ancient manuscript. But we're not going to stop there. Let's look at the degree of accuracy. Even with 25,000 New Testament manuscripts, they are so close that we are virtually certain that 97 to 98% of the New Testament is in its original form. For the remaining 2 to 3%, almost half are just one or two word variants in spelling, such as adding the word like the and so forth. And none of these variants affect doctrine. So 97 to 98% with the other 2 to 3% just really like the word the. You know, that doesn't change anything as far as doctrine goes. And to find a degree of accuracy better than that, you're not going to. And especially with ancient manuscript like we're talking about. And the degree of accuracy, here's a good quote here from B.F. Westcote and F.J.A. Hort from the New Testament in the original Greek, Volume 1. They wrote, If comparative trivialities such as changes of order, the insertion or omission of the article the with proper names and the like are set aside, the words in our opinion still subject to doubt can hardly amount to more than a thousandth part of the New Testament. You know, that's just so minuscule. A.T. Robertson suggests that the real concern of textual criticism of the Bible is of a thousandth part of the entire text. So now you're really, really getting down to like nothing, really. And to argue about a thousandth of piece of text is really no debate at all, really no argument at all. So that's part is settled. And we can obviously see that the text is accurate. The text is reliable. But let's look at some external evidence. This is an external evidence test. Do other historical material confirm or deny the internal testimony of the New Testament? The test asks this. What other sources are there apart from the documents under analysis that substantiate its accuracy, reliability, and authenticity? So in other words, we're looking outside of the New Testament to see if there's anything written about things and people that the, that the Bible writes about. There are quotations from early church fathers concerning the New Testament. So these quotes come from early, the early church, and they're quoting the New Testament. So this is external evidence. And we can see that Justin Martyr, he quotes the gospel of Jesus Christ 268 times from Acts 10 times, from the Pauline letters, from the Apostle Paul 43 times. In all, he quotes 330 different verses from the Bible, from the New Testament. You may say, well, that's not much, 330. Well, let's look at some more. There's a lot. I'm not going to go through all of them. But let's look at one, Origen. He quoted the, the Gospels 9,231 times. The Pauline letters 7,778 times, Acts 349 times, the New Testament in general 399 times, from the book of Revelation 165 times, 
to almost that comes up to almost eighteen thousand, just under seventeen thousand nine hundred and ninety-two. So we keep going and we look at a handful of the early church fathers, seven of them to be exact, and we see that they quote from the New Testament over thirty-six thousand times, thirty-six thousand two hundred and eighty-nine to be exact. So there's a lot of quotes coming from the New Testament that these early church fathers quoted. And so that's some external information right there, some external proof that we can show that the New Testament was there back in those days. Bruce Metzer, he says, Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources of our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. Wow. (laughs) Take all these quotations from those early church fathers and you put them together, you could almost put the entire New Testament together. So that's some good proof right there. And then we look at some others. We can see that in 112 AD, Cornelius Tactus wrote about the death of Jesus at the hands of Pilate. So that's, that's good proof there. We can look at A.D. 66, Josephus, he wrote about the life and death of Jesus Christ, A.D. 66. And there's so many others that we can look at. Lucian, 2nd century, wrote about the new cult of Christianity. So time and time again, we see there's other authors out there who wrote about Christianity. I just don't have time to go through them all today, but there's a number of them and you can go and look them up. There's a, a Roman source, Josephus. He says this, or he wrote this. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So Josephus, he was writing about this, about Jesus. And we see that he wrote about how Jesus died and rose again. And and the significance of Josephus is this. Uh, He makes reference to Jesus' claim to be the Christ. He speaks of miracles. He points out that people perceive Jesus' teaching as the truth, indicates that Pilate was a real person, and the event of the cross, that happened. And he records the claim by his disciples that Jesus was resurrected, and he documents that Jesus had many converts. So again, that's an external source. Here's another external source, a Jewish source called the Talmud. And it quotes, or we quote the Talmud saying this, On the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. And this is from the Talmud from the Sanhedrin. So what's the significance of this writing? One, it confirms the historicity of Jesus Christ, of his life. It confirms death by the method of crucifixion. The Jewish method would have been stoning, as mentioned there, but we know he was 
nailed to the cross, and that's what they say here. It also indicates that Jesus did do miracles, but they attribute it to the power of the devil. You can see that in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, and Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, and Matthew 12, verse 24. And it also indicates that Jesus gathered many converts from the Jewish community. So it's very significant to have that writing. The story of Jesus from secular writings. Here's a summary. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He claimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. An eclipse and an earthquake occurred when he died. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. His disciples believed that he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as Christ. Now, all these quotes come from various secular writers, and they're pulled from a book called 12 Points That Prove Christianity is True. We see in secular writing that they wrote about Jesus. So It's not just coming from believers. It's coming from unbelievers as well. So accuracy is established here. The conclusion from bibliographical and external evidence tests is this quote here from Sir Frederick Keenan. He said, In the interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible, and the last foundation of any doubt that the Scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. I couldn't agree more. There's so much proof that the word that we have today is what was written back when they wrote the New Testament. And we can see that through the evidence we've been talking about this morning. But we're going to continue. We see that the New Testament documents have been reliably translated, copied, and regarded as authentic. So assuming that the translation and copying is accurate, then how do we know if the writers did not make up the stories? It's a valid question. And for that, we're going to continue to look at manuscript evidence. This time we're going to look at internal evidence. And that internal evidence test asks these questions. Is written record believable? To what extent? And are the authors telling the truth? And the criteria we're using to establish credibility of the internal test is this, and it's David Hume's criteria for testing the credibility of witnesses. Number one, do the witnesses contradict each other? Number two, are there a sufficient number of witnesses? Number three, were the witnesses truthful? And number four, were they non-prejudicial? Let's look at the first question. The witnesses, did they contradict each other? And we say no, no they didn't. To be sure, there are minor discrepancies. There's one account in Matthew 28, verse 5, that mentions only one angel was at the tomb. And John, in John chapter 20, verse 12, says there was two. But they both testified that Jesus rose from the dead. So whether there was one angel or two angels, that is really inconsequential because the most important thing is, did Jesus rise up from the tomb? Yes, he did. And there's some resolving discrepancies that we can talk about now because people always like to say well there's discrepancies in the Bible or there's contradictions and so forth and also many people who say that 
have never actually read the Bible. They just heard somebody said it and thought, hey, this is great, I'll say it. But there are passages that they might look at and say, hey, you know, there's some discrepancy here. So let's let's look at that. Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, says that Judas hanged himself. And in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, it's reported that Judas falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. But the resolution of this is sometime after hanging himself, his body was discovered, the rope was cut, and the body fell on sharp rocks, and his body burst open. And that would explain it right there. Internal evidence test number two. There was a sufficient number of witnesses. There were nine different people who wrote the New Testament, all of whom were eyewitnesses or contemporary to the events they recorded. Six of them are most important to establishing Jesus' claims of miracles. We read about that in Matthew and Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and 1 Corinthians. All of these books bear witness to the miracle of the resurrection. In the first Corinthians chapter 15, Paul mentions there were 500 people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. 500 people. That's a lot of people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. The third internal evidence test. Were the witnesses truthful? Yes, they were truthful. Most of them even died for what they believed about Christ. If you're going to die for something you believe in, then you're going to tell the truth about it because, well, who wants to die over a lie, right? You have to really know that it's the truth, really be sold out to that truth if you're willing to die for that truth. Internal evidence test four, were the witnesses non-prejudicial? Jesus not only appeared to believers, he also appeared to unbelievers like James. We see in John chapter 7, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Jesus appeared to the greatest unbeliever of the day. You remember who that was? A Jewish Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter 9, verse 5. If anybody was going to be skeptical about Jesus and the claims of his believers and disciples, it was going to be Saul of Tarsus because he was, you got to remember, he was out persecuting the church. He was trying to stop, to end the Christianity, the believers in Jesus. He was out to stop that. And then Jesus appeared to him. And we know he did a 180, and he became the great apostle Paul. So that's huge evidence right there just in Paul alone. Uh, The witnesses to the resurrection, they had nothing to gain personally. What did they have to gain personally? They had nothing because they ended up being persecuted and threatened with death for their stand. So, again, why would they lie about that? They had nothing to gain but pain, persecution. Nobody wants to go through that. But they believed because they saw Jesus, and they couldn't stop talking about him. The witnesses wrote things that didn't reflect favorably on themselves or their cause. When you think think about these things here, disciples were arguing about positions of, of honor in heaven and who would have a seat at Jesus' right hand. It just shows them kind of like children arguing back and forth, right? Peter, not eating with those who were uncircumcised. Women found the tomb first. If you were an apostle and you wanted to make up something, then you would write about yourself being there first. But they weren't, and they were telling the truth, and they said who was there first, and it was the women. Uh, Mary Magdalene, she was the first one to receive that news that Jesus had, had indeed risen from the dead. And then we also see Jesus calling Peter Satan. Remember, he says, get behind me, Satan. And, you know, that's not a very flattering thing, is it? <laughs> so we 
can also see that the way that the apostles wrote, that they were writing writing the truth. So we're going to ask this question. Did the writers use primary sources? Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theopolis, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke, who was a doctor, so he's going to be very meticulous in his reporting and in his writing. He says he has investigated. He didn't just jot things down and write it down. He investigated it, did some investigating reporting, if you will. And he did that very carefully from the beginning, and he ended up writing the Gospel of Luke, right? And then he wrote Acts. And so he used primary sources, and he did investigative work. Let's look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is writing what he witnessed firsthand. Firsthand, you can't get any better than that. First John 1, 3 says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. Again, John says what we have seen, what we have heard. First person account. John chapter 9, verse 35. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. So he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. Again, firsthand personal experience, and they're writing from that. We are going to stop right here today because we have a lot more to go over, and we will do that next week. I hope this has helped give you some more information about the accuracy of the Bible and that it is reliable. Uh, We looked at some very interesting information looking at manuscripts starting out with. Next week, we will look at some archaeological findings that shows further proof of the Bible and its accuracy and reliability. We'll also look at some prophecy and then look at some statistics. So I hope you'll come back next week right here on the Joy FM at 1030 for Sunday morning with Love and Action. And if you're out there listening today and something has piqued your interest in Jesus, but you just hadn't quite given your life to him yet, I encourage you to reach out to me. I'd love to talk with you. You can call our office at 334-494-4995. You can email me at ken.tuck at loveinactionministries.com. If you're ready to give your life to the Lord, then just call out to him. The Word of God says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. So call out to him. I encourage you to pray something like this. Father God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I know I need a Savior, and I know Jesus is that Savior. So I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and to cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. I repent of my sins. I turn to you and ask you to forgive me, to save me, to give me life, life everlasting. And I ask you to help me to live for you day by day. Fill me with your spirit. And I thank you for saving me, Lord. 
I love you in Jesus' name. Just pray something like that. He meets you right where you're at. He gets you. He understands you. So just talk to him. And if you need somebody else to chat with, just give us a call. Give me an email. Be glad to chat with you. If you made that decision, be glad to give you some information to go about next steps in this life for Jesus and, and living for him. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing like living for Jesus. I've lived in the world and I've lived for Jesus and I'll take Jesus without a shadow of a doubt way over the way my life used to be many years ago. I praise Jesus for saving me. I thank him for saving me and I thank him for giving me this opportunity to share his gospel with you. If you are a believer, I want to encourage you share Jesus with people, share your testimony. He commands us to do that because people out there need to hear about Jesus. They need to have an opportunity to give their lives to Jesus because when life is over here on this earth, our soul is going to go either to hell or to heaven. There's no in-between. And if we don't have Jesus, then the soul goes to hell. If we have Jesus, we go to heaven. And we're with Jesus forever. And we need to care about where people are going. So let's share Jesus with others and make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Love in Action, I encourage you to go to our website, loveinactionministries.com. It's a good landing place to learn more about our ministry. We have a lot of information there about what we do locally as well as around the world. And you can also follow us on Facebook. We post a lot of updates on that. So our Love and Action Facebook page. encourage you to follow us there as well. Thank you again for joining me this morning. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and that you're going to have a good week coming up, I pray. And as you go through this week, remember, Jesus loves you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.